0: Welcome to this Ubula Audio presentation of The King in Yellow by Robert W. Chambers. Volume 8. The Street of the First Shell. Quote, Be of good cheer, the sullen month will die, and the young moon requite us by and by. Look how the old one, meagre, bent, and wan, with age and fast is fainting from the sky. Unquote. CHAPTER ONE The room was already dark. The high rube's opposite cut off what little remained of the December daylight. The girl drew her chair nearer the window, choosing a large needle, threaded it, knotting the thread over her fingers. Then she smoothed the baby garment across her knees, and bending, bit off the thread, and drew the smaller needle from where it rested in the hem. When she had brushed away the stray threads and bits of lace, she laid it again over her knees, caressingly. Then she slipped the threaded needle from her corsage and passed it through a button. But as the button spun down the thread, her hand faltered and the thread snapped. The button rolled across the floor. She raised her head. Her eyes were fixed on a strip of waning light above the chimney's. From somewhere in the city came sounds like the distant beating of drums, and beyond, far beyond, a vague muttering, now growing, swelling, rumbling the distance like the pounding of surf upon the rocks, now like the surf again, receding, growling, menacing. The cold had become intense, a bitter, piercing cold which strained and snapped a joist and beam and turned the slush of yesterday to flint. From the street below every sound broke sharp and metallic the clatter of sabots the rattle of shutters or the rare sound of a human voice the air was heavy weighted with the black cold as with a pall to breathe was painful to move an effort in the desolate sky there was something that wearied in the brooding clouds something that saddened it penetrated the freezing city cut by the freezing river the splendid city with its towers and domes, its keys and bridges and its thousand spires. It entered the squares. It seized the avenues and the palaces, stole across bridges and crept among the narrow streets of the Latin Quarter, gray under the gray of the December sky. Sadness, utter sadness. A fine icy sleet was falling, powdering the pavement, with a tiny crystalline dust. It sifted against the window panes and drifted in heaps along the sill. The light at the window had nearly failed, and the girl bent low over her work. Presently she raised her head, brushing the curls from her eyes. Jack? Yes, dearest?
1: Don't forget to clean your palette.
0: All right, he said, and picking up the palette, sat down upon the floor in front of the stove. His head and shoulders were in the shadow, but the firelight fell across his knees and glimmered red on the blade of the palette knife. Full in the firelight beside him stood a color box. On the lid was carved J. Trent, Ecole des Beaux-Arts, 1870. This inscription was ornamented with an American and a French flag. The sleet blew against the window panes, covering them with stars and diamonds, then melting from the warmer air within, ran down and froze again in fern-like traceries. A dog whined and the patter of small paws sounded on the zinc behind the stove.
1: Jacques, dear, do you think Hercules is hungry?
0: The patter of paws was redoubled behind the stove.
1: He's whining,
0: she continued nervously,
1: and if it isn't because he's hungry... Is because.
0: Her voice faltered. A loud humming filled the air. The windows vibrated.
1: Oh, Jacques. She cried. Another.
0: But her voice was drowned in the scream of a shell tearing through the clouds overhead.
1: That is the nearest yet.
0: She murmured. Oh, no. He answered cheerfully. It probably fell way over by Mont Montreux. And as she did not answer, he said again, with exaggerated unconcern, "'They wouldn't take the trouble to fire at the Latin Quarter. Anyway, they haven't a battery that can hurt it.' After a while, she spoke up brightly.
1: "'Jacques, dear, when are you going to take me to see Monsieur West's statues?'
0: "'I will bet,' he said, throwing down his palette and walking over to the window beside her, "'that Colette has been here today.' Why? she asked, opening her eyes very wide, and then,
1: Oh, it's too bad. Really, men are tiresome when they think they know everything. And I warn you that if Monsieur West is vain enough to imagine that Colette...
0: From the north, another shell came whistling and quavering through the sky, passing above them with a long-drawn screech which left the windows singing. That was too close for comfort, he blurted out. They were silent for a while, and then he spoke again gaily. "'Go on, Sylvia, and wither poor West!' But she only sighed.
1: "'Oh, dear, I can never seem to get used to the shells.'
0: He sat down in the arm of the chair beside her. Her scissors fell, jingling to the floor. She tossed the unfinished frock after them, and putting both arms around his neck, drew him down into her lap.
1: "'Don't go out tonight, Jack.'
0: He kissed her uplifted face. You know I've got to. Don't make it hard on me. But when
1: I hear the shells, and know you are out in the city.
0: But they all fall in Montmartre.
1: They may all fall in the Beau Arts. You said yourself, the two struck the quai d'Orsay.
0: Mere accident.
1: Jack, have pity on me. Take me with you.
0: And who will be there to get dinner? She rose and flung herself onto the bed.
1: Oh, I can't get used to it, and I know you must go, but I beg you not to be late to dinner. If you knew what I suffer, I I cannot help it, and you must be patient with
0: me, dear. He said, It's as safe there as it is in our own house. She watched him fill for her the alcohol lamp, and when he had lit it and taken his hat to go, she jumped up and clung to him in silence. After a moment he said, "'Now, Sylvia, remember my courage is sustained by yours. "'Come on, I've got to go.' "'She didn't move, and he repeated, "'I've got to go.' "'Then she stepped back, and he thought she was going to speak, and waited. "'But she only looked at him, and a little impatiently. "'He kissed her again, saying, "'Don't worry, dearest.' "'When he had reached the last flight of stairs on his way to the street, "'a woman hobbled out of the housekeeper's lodge,' waving a letter and calling,
1: "'Monsieur Jack! Monsieur Jack! "'This was left by Monsieur Fallaby!'
0: He took the letter and, leaning on the threshold of the lodge, read it. "'Dear Jack, I believe Braith is dead broke, "'but I'm sure Fallaby is. Braith swears he isn't, and Fallaby swears he is. "'So you can draw your own conclusions. "'I've got a scheme for dinner, "'and if it works, I will let you fellows in. "'Yours faithfully, West.' P.S. Fallowby has shaken Hartman and his gang, thank the Lord. There is something rotten there, or it may be he's only a miser. P.P.S. I'm more desperately in love than ever, but I'm sure she does not care a straw for me. All right, said Trent with a smile to the concierge, but tell me, how is Papa Cotard? The old woman shook her head and pointed to the curtain bed in the lodge. pere Cotard he cried cheerily. How goes the wound today? He walked over to the bed and drew the curtains. An old man was lying among the tumbled sheets. Better? smiled Trent. Better, repeated the man wearily, and after a pause, Have you any news, Monsieur Jacques? I haven't been out today. I'll bring you any rumor I may hear. Oh, goodness knows I've got enough of the rumors. He muttered to himself, and then aloud, Cheer up, you're looking better. And the sortie? Oh, the sortie. That's for this week, General Trochu sent orders last night. It will be terrible. It will be sickening, thought Trent, as he went out into the street and turned the corner toward the Rue de Somme. Slaughter, slaughter. Wow, glad I'm not going. The street was almost deserted. A few women muffled in tattered military capes crept along the frozen pavement, and a wretchedly clad gamin hovered over the sewer hole on the corner of the boulevard. A rope around his waist held his rags together. From the rope hung a rat, still warm and bleeding.
1: "'There's another in here!'
0: he yelled to Trent.
1: "'I hit him, but he got away!'
0: Trent crossed the street and asked, "'How much?'
1: Two francs for a quarter of a fat one. That's what they give at the Saint-Germain market.
0: A violent fit of coughing interrupted him, but he wiped his face with the palm of his hand and looked cunningly at Trent.
1: Last week you could buy a rat for six francs, but...
0: And here he swore vilely. The rats
1: have quit the Rue de Saint, and they kill them now over by the new hospital. I'll let you have this for seven francs. I can sell it for ten in the Isle of Saint-Louis.
0: You lie said Trent. And let me tell you, if you try to swindle anybody in this quarter, the people will make short work of you and your rats. He stood a moment, eyeing the gamine, who pretended to snivel, Then he tossed him a franc, laughing. The child caught it, and thrusting it into his mouth, wheeled about to the sewer hole. For a second, he crouched, motionless, alert, his eyes on the bars of the drain. Then, leaping forward, he hurled a stone into the gutter, and Trent left him to finish a fierce grey rat that writhed squealing at the mouth of the sewer. Suppose Braith should come to that, he thought. Poor little guy. And hurrying, he turned in the dirty passage to Beaux-Arts and entered the third house to the left. Monsieur is at home, quivered the old concierge. Home? A garret, absolutely bare save for the iron bedstead in the corner and the iron basin and the pitcher on the floor. West appeared at the door, winking with much mystery, and motioned Trent to enter. Braith, who was painting in bed to keep warm, looked up, laughed, and shook hands. Any news? The perfunctory question was answered, as usual, by nothing but the cannon. Trent sat down on the bed. Where on earth did you get that? He demanded, pointing to a half-finished chicken nestling in a washbasin. West grinned. What are you two, millionaires? Come on, out with it. Braith, looking a little ashamed, began. Oh, it's one of West's exploits. But was cut short by West, who said he would tell the story himself. You see, before the siege, I had a letter of introduction to a type pair. A fat banker. German-American variety. You know this species, I see. Well, of course, I forgot to present the letter. But this morning, judging it to be a favourable opportunity, I called on him. The villain lives in comfort. Fires, my boy. Fires in the ante-rooms. His servant, Buttons, finally condescended to carry my letter and card up, leaving me standing in the hallway, which I did not like. So I entered the first room, and I saw nearly fainted at the sight of a banquet on a table by the fire. Down comes Buttons, very insolent. Oh no, his master is not at home, and in fact far too busy to receive letters of introduction just now. The siege, and many business difficulties. I delivered a kick to Buttons, picked up this chicken from the table, tossed my card onto the empty plate, and addressing Buttons as a species of Prussian pig, marched out with the honours of war. "'Trent shook his head. "'I forgot to say that Hartman often dines there, "'and I draw my own conclusions,' continued West. "'Now about this chicken. "'Half of it is for Braith and myself, and half for Colette. "'Of course you will help me eat my part, because I'm not hungry.' "'Neither am I,' began Braith. "'But Trent, with a smile at the pinched faces before him, shook his head, saying, "'What nonsense!' you know i'm never hungry west hesitated reddened and then slicing off brace portion but not eating any himself said good night and hurried away to number 470 rue serpente where there lived a pretty girl named colette orphan after sedan and heaven alone knew where she got the roses in her cheeks for the siege came hard on the poor that chicken will delight her but i really believe she's in love with west said Trent, then walking over to the bed. See here, old man, no dodging. You know how much you have left? The other hesitated and flushed. Come on, tell me, insisted Trent. Braith drew a purse from beneath his bolster and handed it to his friend with a simplicity that touched him. Seven sons, you make me tired. Why on earth didn't you come to me? How many times, Braith... Must I go over the same thing and explain to you that because I have money, it's my duty to share it, and your duty, and the duty of every American, to share it with me? You can't get a cent. The city's blockaded, and the American minister has his hands full with all the German riffraff, and deuce knows what. Why don't you act sensibly? Uh, I will, Trent, but it's an obligation, perhaps. I can never even in part repay. I'm poor, and... Of course you'll pay me. If I were a usurer, I would take your talent for security. When you are rich and famous. Don't, Trent. All right, only no more monkey business. He slipped a dozen gold pieces into the purse, and tucking it again under the mattress, smiled at Braith. How old are you? He demanded. Sixteen. Trent laid a hand lightly on his friend's shoulder. I'm twenty-two and I have the rights of a grandfather as far as you are concerned. You'll do as I say until you're twenty-one. The siege will be over then, I hope, said Braith, trying to laugh, but the prayer in their hearts. How long, O Lord, how long, was answered by the swift scream of a shell soaring among the storm clouds of that December night. Chapter Two West, standing in the doorway of a house in the Rue Serpentine, was speaking angrily. He said he didn't care whether Hartman liked it or not. He was telling him, not arguing with him. "'You call yourself an ally?' he sneered. "'Berlin and Hell are full of that kind of ally. You come loafing about, Colette!' "'and your pockets stuffed with white bread and beef and a bottle of wine at thirty francs, "'and you can't really afford to give a dollar to ambulance and public assistance, "'which Braith does, and he's half-starved!' "'Hartman retreated to the curbstone, but West followed him, his face like a thundercloud. "'Don't you dare call yourself an ally of mine!' he growled. "'No, nor an artist either!' artists don't worm themselves into the service of the public defense, where they do nothing but feed like rats on the people's food. And I'll tell you now. He continued, dropping his voice, for Hartman had started as though stung. You might as well keep away from that Alsatian brasserie and the smug-faced thieves who haunt it. You know what they do with suspects. You're a lying hound, screamed Hartman and he flung the bottle in his hand straight at Wes's face. Wes had him by the throat in a second, and forcing him against the dead wall, shook him wickedly. Now you listen to me, he muttered through his clenched teeth. You're already a suspect, and I swear, I believe you're a paid spy. It isn't my business to detect such vermin, and I don't intend to denounce you, but understand this. Colette doesn't like you, and I can't stand you. And if I catch you in the street again, I'll make it somewhat unpleasant. Get out, you sleek Prussian! Hartman had managed to drag a knife from his pocket, but West tore it from him and hurled him into the gutter. A gamin who had seen this burst into a peal of laughter, which rattled harshly into the silent the street. Then, everywhere, windows were raised and rows of haggard faces appeared, demanding to know why people should laugh in this starving city. Is it a murmured one. "'Look at that!' cried West, as Hartman picked himself up from the pavement. "'Look, you miser! Look at those faces!' But Hartman gave him a look which he never forgot, and he walked away without a word. Trent, who suddenly appeared at the corner, glanced curiously at West, who merely nodded toward his door, saying, "'Come in! Fallaby's upstairs!' What are you doing with that knife? demanded Fallaby as he and Trent entered the studio. West looked at his wounded hand, which still clutched the knife, but said, I cut myself in an accident. And he tossed it into a corner and washed the blood from his fingers. Fallaby, fat and lazy, watched him without comment, but Trent, half-divining how things had turned, walked over to Fallaby, smiling. Got a bone to pick with you. Where is it? I'm hungry, replied Fallaby, with affected eagerness. But Trent, frowning, told him to listen. How much did I advance you a week ago? Three hundred? Three hundred and eighty francs? replied the other with a grim of contrition. Where is it, then? Fallaby began a series of intricate explanations, which were soon cut short by Trent. I knew it. You blew it. You always blow it. I don't care a rap what you did before the siege. I know you're rich and have a right to dispose of your money as you wish to. I also know that, generally speaking, it's none of my business. But now it's my business, since I have to supply the funds until you get some more, which you won't until the siege is ended one way or another. I want to share what I have, but I won't see it thrown out the window. Oh yeah, of course, I know you'll reimburse me. That's not the question. And anyway... It's the opinion of your friends that you will not be worse off for a little abstinence from fleshly pleasures. You're positively a freak in this famine-cursed city of skeletons. I am rather stout, he admitted. Is it true that you're out of money? demanded Trent. Yes, I am, sighed the other. That roast-suckling pig on the Rue saint Honor, is it there yet? continued Trent. "'What?' stammered the feeble one. "'Ah, I thought so. "'I caught you an ecstasy before that suckling pig at least a dozen times.' "'Then laughing, he presented Fallaby with a roll of twenty-franc pieces, saying, "'If these go for luxuries, you have to live on your own flesh.' "'And then he went over to aid West, who sat beside the washbasin, "'binding up his hand. "'You remember yesterday when I left you and Braith to take the chicken to Colette?' "'Chicken?' Good heavens!" moaned Fallaby. "Chicken," repeated West, enjoying Fallaby's grief. "Ay, that is—I must explain that things are changed. Colette and I are, are to be married." "What about the chicken?" groaned Fallaby. "Shut up!" laughed Trent, and slipping his arms through West's, walked to the stairway. "The poor little thing," said West. Just think, not a splinter of firewood for a week. And wouldn't tell me because she thought I needed it for my clay figure. Wow. When I heard it, I smashed that smirking clay nymph to pieces, and the rest can freeze and be hanged. After a moment, he added timidly, Won't you call on your way down and say bonsoir? It's number seventeen. Yes, I think I will, said Trent, and he went out softly, closing the door behind. He stopped on the third landing, lit a match, scanned the numbers over the row of dingy doors and knocked at number 17.
1: C'est toi, George.
0: The door opened.
1: Oh, pardon, Monsieur Jack. I thought it was Monsieur West.
0: Then blushing furiously.
1: Oh, I see you have heard. Oh, thank you so much for your wishes. I'm sure we love each other very much. And I'm dying to see Sylvia and tell her and...
0: Have what? Laughed Trent.
1: I'm very happy,
0: she sighed. Well, he's pure gold, returned Trent, and then gaily. I want you and George to come and dine with us tonight. It's a little treat. You see, tomorrow is Sylvia's feet. She will be nineteen. I have written to Thorne, and the Guanalex will come with their cousin Odile. Fallaby is engaged not to bring anybody but himself. The girl accepted shyly, charging him with loads of loving messages to Sylvia, and he said good-night. He started up the street walking swiftly, for it was bitter cold, and cutting across the Rue de la Lune, he entered the Rue de Seine. The early winter night had fallen, almost without warning, but the sky was clear and myriads of stars glittered in the heavens. The bombardment had become furious, a steady rolling thunder from the Prussian cannon, punctuated by the heavy shocks from Mont Valerion. The shells streaked across the sky, leaving trails like shooting stars. And now, as he turned to look back, rockets, blue and red, flared above the horizon from the fort of E. C., and the fort of the north flamed like a bonfire. Godeuse! a man shouted over the boulevard Saint-Germain. As if by magic, the streets were filled with people, shivering, chattering people with shrunken eyes. Jacques! cried one. The army of the Loire! Eh, mon vieux! It has come then at last! I told thee! I told thee! Tomorrow! Do not Who knows? Is it true? Is it a sortie? Someone said. Oh God, a sortie! And my son? Another cried. To the Seine? They say one can see the signals of the army of Loire from the Pont Neuf. There was a child standing near Trent who kept repeating:
1: Mama! Mama! Then tomorrow we may eat what bread?
0: and beside him an old man, swaying, stumbling, his shriveled hands crushed to his breast, muttering as if insane. Could it be true? Who has heard the news? The shoemaker on the Rue de Bouchy had it from a mobile who heard it repeated to a captain of the National Guard. Trent followed the throng, surging through the Rue de Seine to the river. Rocket after rocket clove the sky, and now from Montmartre. The cannons clanged, and the batteries on Montparnasse joined in with a crash. The bridge was packed with people. Trent asked, Who has seen the signals of the Army of the Loire? We are waiting for them, was the reply. He looked toward the north. Suddenly the huge silhouette of the Arc de Triomphe sprang into black relief against the flash of a cannon. The boom of the gun rolled along the quay and the old bridge vibrated. Again, over by the Pont du Jour, a flash and heavy explosion shook the bridge, and then the whole eastern bastion of the fortifications blazed and crackled, sending a red flame into the sky. "'Has anyone seen the signals yet?' he asked again. "'We are waiting,' was the reply.
1: "'Yeah, waiting,'
0: murmured a man behind him. "'Waiting, sick, starved, freezing, but waiting. "'Is it a sortie?' They go gladly. Is it to starve? They starve. They got no time to think of surrender. Are they heroes, these Parisians? Come on, Trent, tell me. The ambulance surgeon turned around and scanned the parapets of the bridge. Any news, doctor? Asked Trent mechanically. News, said the doctor. I don't know any. I haven't got time to know any. What are these people after? They say the army of the Loire has signaled Mont Valerien. "'Poor devils!' The doctor glanced about him for an instant and then. "'I'm so harried and worried I don't know what to do. "'After the last sortie, we had the work of 50 ambulances on our poor little corps. "'Tomorrow there's another sortie, "'and I wish you fellows could come over to headquarters. "'We may need volunteers.' "'How is Madame?' he asked abruptly. "'She's well,' replied Trent. "'But she seems to grow more nervous every day. "'I ought to be with her now.' "'Take care of her,' said the doctor, then with a sharp look at the people. "'I can't stop now. Good night,' and he hurried away muttering. "'Poor devils.' Trent leaned over the parapet and blinked at the black river surging through the arches. Dark objects carried swiftly on the breast of the current, struck with a grinding, tearing noise against the stone piers, spun around for an instant and hurried away into the darkness.' "'the ice from the Marne. "'As he stood staring into the water, "'a hand was laid on his shoulder. "'Hello, Southwark,' he cried, turning around. "'This is a queer place for you. "'Trent, I have something to tell you. "'Don't stay here. "'Don't believe in the Army of the Loire.' "'And the attaché of the American legation "'slipped his arm through Trent's "'and drew him toward the Louvre. "'Then it's another lie.' said Trent bitterly. Worse, we know at the legation. I can't speak of it, but that's not what I have to say. Something happened this afternoon. The Alsatian Brasserie was visited. An American named Hartman has been arrested. Do you know him? I know a German who calls himself an American. His name is Hartman. Well, he was arrested about two hours ago. They mean to shoot him. What? Of course, we at the legation can't allow them to shoot him off hand, but the evidence seems conclusive. Is he a spy? Well, the papers seized in his rooms are pretty damning proofs. And besides, he was caught, they say, swindling the public food committee. He drew rations for 50. How, I don't know. He claims to be an American artist here. We're obliged to take notice of it at the legation. It's a nasty affair. To cheat people at a time like this is worse than robbing the poor box, cried Trent angrily. Let him shoot him. He's an American citizen. Yeah, right, said the other with bitterness. American citizenship, a precious privilege when every goggle-eyed German can... His anger choked him. Southwark shook hands with him warmly. It can't be helped. We must own the carrion. I'm afraid you may be called upon to identify him as an American artist. He said this with a ghost of a smile on his deep-lined face and walked away through the Cour Lorraine. Trent swore angrily for a moment and then drew out his watch. Seven o'clock. Sylvia will be anxious, he thought, and hurried back to the river. The crowd still huddled, shivering on the bridge, a somber, pitiful congregation peering out into the night for the signals of the army of the Loire. Their hearts beat time to the pounding of the guns, their eyes lit with each flash from the bastions and hope rose from the drifting rockets. A black cloud hung over the fortifications. From horizon to horizon, the cannon smoke stretched into wavering bands. Now capping the spires and domes with cloud, now blowing in streamers and shreds along the streets, now descending from the housetops and developing quays, bridges, and river in a sulfurous mist. And through the smoke pall, the lightning of the cannon played, while from time to time a rift above showed a fathomless black vault set with stars. He turned again into the Rue de Seine that sad, abandoned street with its rows of closed shutters and desolate ranks of unlit lamps. He was a little nervous and wished once or twice for a revolver, but the slinking forms that passed him in the darkness were too weak with hunger to be dangerous. And he passed on unmolested to his doorway. But at his doorway somebody sprang in his throat. Over and over on the icy pavement he rolled with his assailant, tearing at the noose about his neck, and then with a wrench he sprang to his feet. Get up, he cried to the other. Slowly, with great deliberation, a small gamine picked himself out of the gutter and surveyed Trent with disgust. That's a nice, clean trick, said Trent. Kid of your age, you'll finish against a death wall. Give me that cord. The urchin handed him the noose without a word. Trent struck a match and looked at the assailant. It was the rat killer from the day before. "Uh Uh-huh, I thought so, he muttered.
1: Tiens, c'est toi,
0: said the gamine tranquilly. The impudence, the overpowering audacity of the ragamuffin took Trent's breath away. Do you know, you young strangler, that they shoot thieves of your age? The child turned a passionless face to Trent. Shoot, then. That was too much, and he turned on his heel and entered his hotel. Groping up the unlit stairway, he at last reached his own landing and felt about in the darkness for the door. From his studio came the sound of voices, West's hearty laugh and Fallaby's chuckle. And at last he found the knob and pushed back the door, stood a moment confused by the light. Hello, Jack, cried West. You're a pleasant creature, inviting people to dine and letting them wait. Here's Fallaby, weeping with hunger. Shut up observed the latter. Maybe he went out to buy a turkey. He's been out garroting. Look at that noose, laughed Guadalek. So, now we know where you'll get your cash, added West. Vive la Coupe de Père Francois! Trent shook hands with everybody and laughed at Sylvia's pale face. I didn't mean to be late. I stopped on the bridge a moment to watch the bombardment. Were you anxious, Sylvia? She smiled and murmured, Oh no, but... Her hand dropped into his and tightened convulsively. "'To the table!' shouted Fallaby, and uttered a joyous whoop. "'Take it easy,' observed Thorne with a remnant of manners. "'You're not the host, you know.' Marie Guanlec, who had been chattering with Colette, jumped up and took Thorn's arm, and Monsieur Guanlec drew Odile's arm through his. Trent, bowing gravely, offered his own arm to Colette. West took in Sylvia, and Fallaby hovered anxiously in the rear.
1: You march around the table three times, singing the Marseillaise,
0: explained Sylvia,
1: and Monsieur Fallaby pounds on the table and beats time.
0: Fallaby suggested that they could sing after dinner, but his protest was drowned out in the ringing chorus. Au armé, formez vos bataillons. And around the room they marched singing "Marchons, marchons." with all their might, while Fallaby, with very bad grace, hammered on the table, consoling himself a little with the hope that the exercise would increase his appetite. Hercules, the black and tan, fled under the bed, from which, retreating, he yapped and whined until dragged out by Guinelec and placed on Odile's lap. And now, Trent said gravely, when everybody was seated, listen. And he read the menu. soup de jour. Beef soup à la siege de Paris, fish, sardine à la Perlochaz with white wine, Rotti red wine, fresh beef à la sortie, vegetables, canned beans à la chasse pot, canned peas gravalot, potatoes irlandes, miscellaneous, cold corned beef à la ties stewed prunes a la Garibaldi. Dessert, dried prunes, white bread, currant jelly, tea, café, liqueurs, pipes, and cigarettes. Fallaby applauded frantically and Sylvia served the soup.
1: Isn't it delicious?
0: sighed Odile. Marie Guanalex sipped her soup in rapture.
1: ''Not at all like horse. I don't care what they say. Horse does not taste like beef,''
0: whispered Colette to West. Fallowby, who had finished, began to caress his chin and eyed the tureen. ''Would you have some more, old chap?'' inquired Trent.
1: ''Monsieur Fallowby cannot have any more,''
0: announced Sylvia.
1: ''I am saving this for the concierge.''
0: Fallowby transferred his eyes to the fish. The sardines, hot from the grill, were a great success. While the others were eating, Sylvia ran downstairs with the soup for the old concierge and her husband, and she hurried back, flushed and breathless, and had slipped into her chair with a happy smile at Trent. That young man arose, and silence fell over the table. For an instant he looked at Sylvia, and thought he had never seen her so beautiful. You all know, he began, that today is my wife's nineteenth birthday. Fallowby, bubbling with enthusiasm, waved his glass in circles around his head, to the terror of Odile and Colette. His neighbors and Thorn and West and Guinelec refilled their glasses three times before the storm of applause which the toast of Sylvia had provoked subsided. Three times the glasses were filled and emptied to Sylvia and again to Trent, who protested. "'This is irregular,' he cried. "'The next toast is to our three republics, France, Britain, and America.' "'To the republics! To the republics!' they cried, and the toast was drunk amid shouts of "'Vive la France! Vive l'américain Vive la Breton, Vive la Nation!' Then Trent, with a smile at West, offered the toast. "'To a happy pair!' and everybody understood, and Sylvia leaned over and kissed Colette while Trent bowed to West. The beef was eaten in comparative calm, But when it was finished, and a portion of it set aside for the old people below, Trent cried, Drink to Perry! May she rise from her ruins and crush the invader! And the cheers rang out, drowning for a moment the monotonous thunder of the Prussian guns. Pipes and cigarettes were lit, and Trent listened an instant to the animated chatter about him, broken by ripples of laughter from the girls, or the mellow chuckle of Fallaby. Then he turned to West. There's going to be a sortie tonight, he said. I saw that ambulance surgeon just before I came in, and he asked me to speak to you fellows. Any aid we can give him will not come amiss. Then, dropping his voice and speaking in English, he said, As for me, I shall go out with the ambulance tomorrow morning. There is, of course, no danger, but it's just as well to keep it from Sylvia. West nodded. Thorn and Gwernlech, who had heard, broke in and offered assistance, and Fallaby volunteered with a groan. All right, said Trent rapidly. No more now, but meet me at ambulance headquarters tomorrow morning at eight. Sylvia and Colette, who were becoming uneasy at the conversation in English, now demanded to know what they were talking about. What does a scalper usually talk about? cried West with a laugh. Odile glanced reproachfully at Thor and her fiancé.
1: You are not French, you know. It is none of your business this war,
0: said Odile with much dignity. Thorne looked meek, but West assumed an air of outraged virtue. It seems, he said to Fallaby, that a fellow cannot dismiss the beauties of Greek sculpture in his mother tongue without being openly suspected. Colette placed her hand over his mouth, and turning to Sylvia, murmured, They are wholly untruthful, these men.
1: I believe the word for ambulance is the same in both languages,
0: said Marie
1: saucily. Sylvia, don't trust Monsieur Trent. Jack,
0: whispered Sylvia,
1: promise me.
0: A knock at the studio door interrupted her. Come in, cried Fallaby. But Trent sprang up, and opening the door, looked out. Then, with a hasty excuse to the rest, he stepped out into the hallway and closed the door behind him. When he returned, he was grumbling. What is it, Jack? cried West. What is it? repeated Trent savagely. I'll tell you what it is. I received a dispatch from the American minister to go at once and identify and claim as a fellow countryman and a brother artist, a rascally thief and a German spy. Don't go! suggested Fallaby. If they don't, they'll shoot him at once. Let them, growled Thorne. Do you fellows know who it is? Hartman, shouted West. Sylvia sprang up deathly white, but Odile slipped her arm around her and supported her to a chair, saying calmly,
1: Sylvia has fainted. It's the hot room. Bring some water.
0: Trent brought it at once. Sylvia opened her eyes after a moment and, supported by Marie Guanalec, and Trent passed into the bedroom. It was the signal for breaking up, and everybody came and shook hands with Trent, saying they hoped Sylvia would sleep it off, and that it would be nothing. When Marie Grenelic took leave of him, she avoided his eyes, but he spoke to her cordially and thanked her for her aid. Anything I can do, Jack, inquired West, lingering, and then hurrying downstairs to catch up with the rest. Trent leaned over the banisters, listening to their footsteps and chatter and then the lower door banged, and the house was silent. He lingered, staring down into the blackness, biting his lips, and then with an impatient movement. I am crazy, he muttered, and lit a candle and went into the bedroom. Sylvia was lying on the bed. He bent over her, smoothing the curly hair on her forehead. Are you better, dear Sylvia? She didn't answer, but raised her eyes to his. For an instant, he met her gaze but what he read there sent a chill to his heart, and he sat down, covering his face with his hands. At last she spoke in a voice changed and strained, a voice which he had never heard, and he dropped his hands and listened, bolt upright in his chair.
1: Jack, it is come at last. I have feared and trembled. Ah, how often I have lain awake at night with this in my heart, and prayed I might die before you should ever know for I love you, Jack, and if you go away I cannot live. I have deceived you. It happened before I knew you, but since that first day when you found me weeping in Luxembourg, and spoke to me, Jack, I have been faithful to you in every thought, every deed. I loved you from the first, and did not dare to tell you this, fearing you would go away. And since then my love has grown, grown and oh, how I have suffered, but I dare not tell you. And now you know, but you do not know the worst. For him, now, what do I care? He was cruel, oh, so
0: cruel. She hid her face in her arms.
1: Must I go on? Must I tell you? Can you not imagine, Jack? Oh.
0: He didn't stir, his eyes seemed dead.
1: I I was so young, I knew nothing, and he said, he said that he loved me."
0: Trent rose and struck the candle with his clenched fist, and the room was dark. The bells of Saint-Sulpice tolled the hour, and she started up speaking with feverish haste.
1: I must finish. When you told me you loved me, you asked me nothing, but then, even then it was too late, and that other life which binds me to him must stand forever between you and me, for there is another whom he has claimed, and is good to. He must not die, they cannot shoot him, for that other's sake.
0: Trent sat motionless, but his thoughts ran on in an interminable whirl. Sylvia, little Sylvia, who shared with him his student life, who bore with him the dreary desolation of the siege without complaint, This slender, blue-eyed girl whom he was so quietly fond of, whom he teased or caressed as the whim suited, who sometimes made him the least bit impatient with her passionate devotion to him, could this be the same Sylvia who lay weeping there in the darkness? Then he clenched his teeth. Let him die! Let him die! But then, for Sylvia's sake and for the other's sake, Yes, he had to go. He had to go. His duty was plain before him. But Sylvia, he could not be what he had been to her. And yet a vague terror seized him, and now all was said. Trembling, he struck a light. She lay there. Her curly hair tumbled about her face. Her small white hands pressed to her breast. He couldn't leave her, and he couldn't stay. He never knew before that he loved her. She had been a mere comrade, this girl-wife of his. Oh, he loved her now with all his heart and soul, and he knew it. Only now it was too late. Too late? Why? Then he thought of that other one, binding her, linking her forever to the creature who stood in danger of his life. With an oath he sprang to the door, but the door would not open was it that he pressed it back, locked it, and flung himself on his knees beside the bed, knowing that he dared not for his life's sake leave what was his all in life.